0: begin tonight without thanking you and thanking Summit Woods for the opportunity to open God's word with you tonight. My prayer is that God alone would be glorified through our time together. Most of you know that my daughter and son-in-law, along with our two-year-old and almost eight-month-old grandsons, are here for the time being. One of our very first outings was to Deanna Rose Farm. I'd like to assume that the highlight for the two-year-old was the petting zoo that was filled with baby goats. It really was a madhouse. Many of you have probably been there. You go through two gates with your little one to be in this pen full of baby goats, the toddler is allowed to hold a little bottle of milk to allow the goats to be fed, and uh, fed by your youngster. In fact, if you grab an empty bottle, which I did with Eli, you could feed the goats with that. It, It didn't matter. Empty or full, These goats were frantically running around, scrambling from one toddler to another, taking in whatever was or was not presented to them. In addition, there were some teenage assistants. Their job was to keep the goats from being led out of the pen, we might say led astray, by a two-year-old. An important job. From the first night that we began this study of the book of Colossians, Dalton rightly identified this letter to the Colossians as a call not to be led astray. This letter is a call to not be led astray from the incredible truth that Christ is supreme. The, the supremacy of Christ is at the heart of what Paul wants the people reading this letter and all believers to be reminded of. Paul is countering false teachers who really want nothing more than to lead the Colossians away from the truth of the gospel. We saw in the first 23 verses uh, of this chapter of this first chapter Paul's emphasis first on thankfulness in verses 3 through 8 verses 9 through 14 Paul emphasized stability in Christ verses 15 through 20 were the amazing focus on the incomparable Christ and two weeks ago, Sam led us through verses 21 through 23, which emphasized Christ's sufficient reconciliation. We would say that the apostle knows people's hearts. Paul has never been to Colossae, but he knows the inclination of the heart. He knows that believers can frantically be looking Around for spiritual nourishment in a multitude of wrong places. He knows that any member of a flock can be led completely out of the fold by the equivalent of a theological two year old holding an empty bottle of promises. With that said, our verses do mark a shift for Paul. He's made the case for where this flock, and really by extension, where all the people of God should get their nourishment. He's now going to explain what he has to do with this effort. And he begins to unpack why he serves the flock the way he does. Paul is really establishing his credibility by modeling servant leadership. So how does he do that? Paul is giving the Colossian church four examples of service to show them complete in Christ. Four examples of service to show them complete in Christ. Let's dig into these verses. In verse 24, we see the first example of his service to the church. That example is his rejoicing in suffering. His rejoicing in suffering. Paul begins this passage with, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. There are several times in this passage that we're going to see words repeated. We know that if we see... Words repeated over and over in a passage. It's one very good way to see what is emphasized, what might be important. In verses 24 through 29, Paul uses the word I five times. He uses the word we once. This passage is his description of his service to the church in Colossae. In fact, he concluded, verse 23, that Sam covered with the following of which I Paul was made a minister he's setting up our verses to go into greater detail regarding being made a minister before we get into the i statements we don't want to miss the first word now this is after all that he has previously said he tells them he tells them what he now rejoices in his suffering. What are these present sufferings? The immediate context we need to remember is Paul is in prison in Rome. So how does he do that? How does he rejoice in sufferings for the Lord? We might say there are really two explanations. One is implied by what we know in context about Paul. Another, he tells us, In terms of for your sake. One pastor put it this way. How could anyone rejoice in suffering? To begin with, Paul was suffering because of Jesus Christ. It was the fellowship of his sufferings. In Philippians 3.10 that we read about. Like the early apostles, Paul was rejoicing that he was counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, as in Acts 5.41. A Christian doesn't suffer like a thief or an evildoer, but it is an honor as a Christian to suffer. We read that in 1 Peter 4.15. There's a second explanation. Paul says, for your sake. He is suffering for the Gentiles, including those in Colossae, whom he's never met. Again, it begs the question, how does he suffer for their sake? There are a couple things we can say with confidence. Paul was the the chosen apostle to the Gentiles. We read about this in Ephesians 3. He, He was actually a prisoner in Rome, we might say, because of his love of the Gentiles. If we took the time to go back to Acts 22, read the whole uh, account of Paul before the Jewish people, it was the word Gentile that really made the Jews kind of go crazy, made them so upset. The The Colossians would have every reason to love Paul because he was willing to suffer in prison for those he had never met and those that were mostly Gentile. What about the remainder of verse 24? When we read and, this is related to, it's a further explanation of Paul rejoicing in his suffering as he says, And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is one of those difficult passages with, a, with varying explanations. There is a variety of godly pastors, theologians, commentators who will differ on this, on this passage. I'm going to share where I come down. But we first need to say what this is not. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has imagined this to be a reference to the sufferings of Christians in purgatory. Christ's sufferings, they would say, was not enough to purge us completely from our sins. No. For the first 23 verses of this chapter, we've seen a rallying cry stating that Christ is sufficient for our salvation. As they say, full stop, no questions asked. So, one clue as to what Paul is showing the Colossians. The word afflictions is not used in the New Testament for the sacrificial sufferings of Christ. This word is used 21 times. It means tribulation, including Matthew 24, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, etc. The word afflictions is the pressures, the persecution Paul and all believers endured and continue to endure. The sacrificial sufferings of Christ are over. But his body, the church, experiences suffering because of its stand for the faith. Here's what John MacArthur says about this passage, this verse, and this is where I land. Paul was receiving the persecution that was intended for Christ. Jesus was out of reach, but because his enemies had not filled up all the injuries they wanted to inflict on Christ, they turned their hatred on those who preached the gospel, those who believed. It was in a sense that Paul filled up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. Paul's first example of service to the church is his rejoicing in suffering. What do we, what do I do with this verse? Let me suggest one application. When I was in my early 20s, long before I had made a decision for Christ, I remember being fascinated by the story of Johnny Erickson Tada. There aren't too many young people in here that wouldn't know that name. But in case you don't, Johnny Erickson Tada is Three years older than I am, so she's getting up there. When she was 17, she was paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident. I mention her age because for 57 years she's suffered physically due to um, this accident, but she is an outspoken Christian, an outspoken one who praises God for her accident, for her suffering, for her situation. Here's her take on suffering. Suffering provides the gym equipment on which my faith can be exercised. My faith can be exercised. This brings me, it brings us to some convicting questions that we need to answer. I personally am embarrassed to even use the word suffering for the minor inconveniences that that I've experienced for Christ and for his body. Are my, are your sufferings, your afflictions, endured with rejoicing? Are you doing your part along with Paul and all those saints that have gone before us? Paul's first example is his rejoicing in suffering. So I'll ask one more time, can we do anything less than rejoice? Paul not only is explaining that he rejoices in suffering, verses 25 through 27 show us a second example. The second example, his ministering. His ministering, a second example of Paul's service to the church for their completion in Christ. I want to start with reading verse 25 in the very beginning of verse 26. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Verse 26 then begins, that is the mystery. First a short, another short rabbit trail. My wife Julie and I have benefited from a lot of knickknacks that we've inherited from her parents because they traveled the world. One of those knickknacks is a Russian doll. You probably know what I'm talking about. It's a hollow wooden doll that has another hollow wooden doll inside of that. And it has another hollow wooden doll inside of that. I want to read a description of the Apostle Paul's teaching in these verses according to Douglas Moo, a very respected New Testament scholar. Here's what he says. A typical Pauline sentence resembles a series of Russian dolls. The main or outer clause yields to a series of subordinate or inner clauses. So it is here. The sentence that began in verse 24 continues in verse 26. I rejoice in what I'm suffering. I fill up in my flesh for the sake of the body, the church of which I am a servant, by the commission to fulfill the word of God, which is a mystery. A typical long sentence by Paul. I want us to see that the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to reveal layer after layer of what his ministry looks like to these believers. And again, I think it's important that they haven't met him. They need to see what his ministry looks like. So first we need to define a few terms. In verse 25, minister, this is a servant of a king an attendant, one who executes the commands of another. It is as, as if he's a slave. He has no choice in the matter. Paul could have saved himself a lot of persecution if he had backed off just a little his ministry to the Gentiles. That wasn't an option. He was executing the commands of another. And what about the word stewardship? Campbell mentioned that word, talked about that word this morning. In the Christian Standard Bible, it's commission. In the King James, it's dispensation. Go back to the picture of a slave in a household. This stewarding, this commissioning, is the management of a household. It's oversight, it's administration. Again, it's not his ministry. It's God's ministry and he is supervising. Next, Paul is telling the Colossians, this stewardship is for their benefit. One commentator put it this way, Paul's commission to make the word of God fully known has led to the ministry of that word through his association with Epaphras at Colossae, and thus made the Colossians beneficiaries of his apostolic commission, even though he hasn't visited them in person. Again, they need a picture of what his ministry is like and how he ministers on their behalf. This brings us to the first so that statement in this passage. So that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. As Paul carries out the preaching of the word of God, he tells us what that means. Look at verse 26. That is the mystery which had been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints to whom God willed, To make known what the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is. The mystery that is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Of course we don't want to miss the word that is. Paul is uncovering another layer here. He's, He's showing us another doll. And then the next key word is mystery. He uses it three times. In this context, it's mostly, we, most likely, excuse me, a mystery of God. It's the secret counsels which were governed by God in dealing with the righteous, which are hidden from the ungodly, but plain to the godly. We could go further. We need to go further with this definition. This is truth revealed to all believers, from the New Testament period moving forward. The past ages and generations were the Old Testament era and the people now is the time of the writing of the New Testament. We can spend a lot of time on the use of the word mystery in the New Testament, but I wanted to go over just a a few further explanations. There is the mystery of the incarnate God coming right up in Colossians 2 and 3. One pastor put it this way, there's the mystery of Israel's unbelief in Romans 11. The mystery of lawlessness that we talked about in 2 Thessalonians and that will be in In Revelation. There's the mystery of unity of Jew and Gentile in the church at Ephesus. And in 1 Corinthians 2, we see a confirmation, this truth is available for those who are saints. As we move to verse 27, we see the words, to whom God willed to make known. This also tells us something important. The mysteries were not discovered by the brilliance of man, the cleverness of man, it was God's will that people know the truth. Paul gives us another doll, one more layer. So let's ask the question of this passage. What's the greatest? What's the most profound mystery? The rest of verse 27 tells us. The riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, Paul tells his readers, is Christ in you the hope of glory. Friends, we know that from Genesis through Revelation, the the Messiah was predicted the one who would crush the serpent's head. But the idea that the third person of the Trinity would actually live in us, that was not revealed to Old Testament believers. Let's take just a moment to turn to 1 Corinthians 6.19. 1 Corinthians 6.19. This is a familiar passage. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Among the most profound of mysteries revealed is our hope of glory. It's that we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. This is incredible and it's something that we need to be reminded of. What do we do with this second example of Paul's service, his ministering? Julie and I recently attended the funeral of a brother who we knew when we were part of a church plant over in Kansas. This man, Salvatore, we called him Sal, had been a missionary, a pastor. He was an elder at the church. A year younger than me, he he passed away with brain cancer about a month ago. At his funeral, there was literally a, a line of people who were allowed to come up and briefly share their memories of visiting Sal, especially in the three years that he was dealing with brain cancer. And without exception, they all said something really similar. They said, if you visited Sal when he was sick, he insisted that you get down on your knees at his couch, you pray with him, and you were reminded of the hope of the gospel that he had. He was hopeful. Sal was modeling the hope of the glory. If if we know the Lord, if we have repented and believed, this hope of the glory changes everything. Again, this passage makes me ask some questions in the first person. Does this hope change my, change your, anxiety? Does this hope change your goals? Does it change your bucket list? Your relationships? I'm pointing at myself because I have a long bucket list. Does this change the relationships you have with others? Do you, do I live with the hope of eternal glory, always tempering my outlook? If you do not know the Lord, If you're listening to this online or whatever, there is no other hope. Repent and believe. Come to Jesus tonight. The second example of service, his and our ministering. Paul's third example of service to the church is his proclaiming, proclaiming in verse 28 we proclaim him admonishing every person teaching every person with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ paul says we here this is still one of his i statements but it may include him it may include his fellow workers such as timothy and epaphras that he mentioned at the beginning of this chapter Again, we need to define some words. Proclaim is to announce. It's to declare, and especially publicly. So we proclaim proclaim Him, Christ, admonishing. This is more warning, exhorting. So who do we warn? Every person. We need to stop here again. Paul is giving us one of his patented repetitions that tell us, stop and pay attention to this. That word every, I discovered, is the Greek word "pos." He uses it four times in this sentence. Admonishing every person. Teaching every person with all wisdom. Yes, all is P-A-S, pos. Presenting every person. I think Paul is not only telling the Colossians something important, but he's telling all believers something extremely important. And here's how one person put put it, one pastor. Every person cannot be restricted just to every person in Colossae. On the other hand, it cannot mean every person in the universe. It's best taken in this context to mean every person we encounter, every person that God brings into our scope of ministry. We now call that our sphere of influence. Again, this should convict you and I. Am I proclaiming Christ in my sphere of influence What does my proclaiming look like? Paul continues with, and teaching every person with all wisdom. He's saying he imparts instruction, he instills doctrine with all wisdom. Wisdom we would define as all that is necessary for godly and upright living, all wisdom. We could say so much about wisdom if we went to the, the book of Proverbs to further define this. It's all that is necessary for godly and upright living. Why does he proclaim? Why does he teach? Verse 28 gives us our second so that statement in this passage along with verse 25. Really our second explanation of why Paul is serving in these four ways so that we may present every person complete in Christ if we were to go to the website of our church you'll see the purpose the goal of our ministry here to magnify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ Part of making disciples is the maturing of the saints. Our goal is not to just win people to Christ, but to bring them to spiritual maturity, to complete them in Christ. Philippians 3.12 tells us that no one on earth has arrived at this position yet, but we will one day be there. This is the humbling and yet amazing promise. We will one day be complete in Christ. So Paul's third example of service, we proclaim Him. Do we appreciate this incredible privilege to also proclaim the Gospel in our sphere of influence? Or do we hold on to the truths of the gospel as if we don't care about those souls around us? May it never be. There's a fourth example of service in verse 29. Paul also teaches that he labors. He labors in service to the church. For this purpose I also labor striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. Paul gives us another purpose, another example. He says he labors. The ESV uses the word toils. As I thought about this word, I think we Westerners, especially we Americans, can sometimes have a, a kind of a cavalier view of the word labor. It's, it's kind of benign not all that intense. We talk about labor unions. We think fondly of Labor Day, the last big break in the summer. This is not that. Labor is to work to the point of exhaustion. It's not half-hearted. Paul wants to be sure we see this. He further defines this example by using the word striving One last rabbit trail. I know it's dangerous for a layman like myself to use two Greek words in a sermon like this. Pastor Brett's taught us that. But, well, especially since I don't know enough Greek to fight my way out of a wet paper bag, but Paul uses one of my favorite Greek words, agonizomai. This is contending in gymnastic games, it's athletic competition. We get the word agonize. It's even to fight. The English word agonize is, is all those. MacArthur puts it this way, success in serving the Lord like success in sports demands maximum effort. Paul doesn't want his readers, and God doesn't want us to miss that our labor cannot be willy nilly it can't be half-hearted he makes this real clear so but how do we labor how do we strive notice according to his power which mightily works within me he again is reminding us of the holy spirit paul is so good at making sure we don't miss the point He's reminding these believers that all their striving, all their hard work would be useless except for the power and the might of God in him. He does this all, of, all the time. He reinforces what these people, what we know, but we continue to be, need to be reminded of. We are weak. He is strong. We could go to a very familiar, another familiar passage. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Paul has given us and given the Colossians four examples of service to the church for their completion in Christ. Presenting every man complete in Christ, as he puts it. He's shown then that he rejoices in suffering, that he ministers, that he proclaims, and that he labors. And he tells us why he does it. To kind of bring this full circle all of us who claim to know Christ serve obviously in some capacity because those we serve can be like baby goats easily led astray by empty bottles of unbiblical promises we also rejoice in our suffering we ministry we minister we proclaim we labor to the point of exhaustion sometimes these examples these challenges have been carried down through the ages we might say from the colossian church all the way to us in romans 12:1, paul made a similar point therefore i urge you brothers and sisters by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We magnify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, um, you have given us in your word so much that we need to hear over and over and Thank you so much for this passage and for these reminders. I pray that we would glorify you through our activities throughout the week, through our serving, through our ministry in, in such a wide variety, variety of ways. We praise you and we give you thanks. and We pray in Jesus' name, amen.